So you're a writer. How did that happen? Huh, okay, that's already the, already the first question is difficult. Okay, where do I start? I would start as young as possible because it's a much more colorful story that way. Okay. As a child, I was a complete book nerd. I was reading all the time. The, everything I could find on the shelves of my parents also, and especially the books I was not supposed to read yet. What kind of books did your parents have that you weren't supposed to read? <laughs> that sounds horribly inappropriate. <laughs> I remember this one written by an, I think, American woman that married an Iranian guy. And she got kidnapped or her kids got kidnapped. I don't know, but things you should not read about when you're maybe 12. <laughs> so I went some way totally yeah. different than that. I was thinking like <laughs> things about drugs or joy of sex or like things like that. So, oh, no, no. Okay. You just mean age appropriate <laughs> topics. Okay. Fine. Exactly. Yeah. So it all started by reading. I already had the dream as a kid to to write later on as a journalist or even write books, but I didn't have a straight path going there. I also, I wasn't the kind of kid that was writing tons of stories or anything like that. I don't think I saw myself as that creative. In the end, I even studied political science, which is something very different. Although I already had the idea to maybe write about that topic in some form. And in the end, it happened like that, that I started in journalism, first with a local newspaper already when I was yeah about 16, and then later working in the media world, first in the political area, but then getting slightly disillusioned over time and changing more to the creative part, arts, culture, all that. <laughs> you don't say disillusioned <laughs> about politics? That's shocking. Well, yeah, I think every political science student starts out of idealism and then possibly gets crushed out by the reality of it all. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Washington, D.C., the hub of all politics in America, and I'm crushed. I don't want to like there are two topics I generally try and stay away from. and They are politics and religion. And both of which are due to my childhood because <laughs> I grew up in Washington, D.C., and my father's a priest. So okay. <laughs> basically, I just don't want to talk about either of those two things, mostly mostly because no matter what I talk, whenever I talked about them, I was never the smartest person in the room. There was always somebody who knew more and was better at it. So I was like, I'm going to lose this fight. So I just stopped. I understand. <laughs> so then you went on and wrote a book. I actually did. Yes. It happened that way that I was interested in a topic, which was art in Iceland. I had been going to Iceland for quite a while, like everybody for the nature and all that it's famous for. I was already writing as a journalist about art and culture. And then I started putting the two together and was actually looking for a book to read on Icelandic art which is very hard to find. So there are a lot of monographs about single artists, but overviews don't really exist. And that's how the idea about doing it myself started to form in my head. <laughs> okay, how did you get it made though? Who, who funded it? How'd you, how'd you produce the physical product? So first I was so lucky that a friend of mine is a photographer who had also been going to Iceland for a while and was equally in love with the country. And I told her about the idea. And she said, well, if you're doing this, I'm in. I'm, I'm going with you. I'll take the photos. Starting from that point on, I thought, okay, this might actually be doable somehow. In the end, it was self-funded. We had considered doing it with a publisher. And I had even been to the Frankfurt Book Fair, I had meetings with publishers. There were even some that were interested and made certain proposals. But it became very clear that the way the publishing marketing looks like right now and also the way these publishers work, which I wasn't aware of, that it would not have been very beneficial for us. To tell. I will, I will. Because I was actually, I'm not, I wasn't very well versed in the whole publishing industry. It was really something I had to research and and 
find everything out about. What became clear is, and I don't want to name anyone here specifically, but right now the situation seems to be that if you want to be published, even with a big publisher, you have to bring in your own money, partly at least, and quite a big amount. Yeah, I was about to say, when you say partly, so like, is this a thousand euros or 10,000 euros? It's more in the realm of 10,000 euros, and it depends on the publisher. But yeah, it's something uh, that nobody really knows about, to be honest. And I think also many people who agree to the deals, they will not reveal it either. So it's this hidden secret that I think should be more out in the open. Well, I mean, it begs the question, like, okay, so you're decide, you're a writer and you decide to write a book about the art of Iceland. Totally legit. And I'm going to just like, I'm going to play devil's advocate on this, but like, why produce a book? Why not make a website that would be an ongoing resource that could be updated, whereas a book is sort of locked in time? It's also something we considered for a while. At one point when we realized how, how difficult the whole process is and how much it costs at one point we were sitting there and was like oh damn let's just let's do a website and and that's it you know but it's it's not the same i'm i'm a book person personally maybe it's it's also just a personal preference and uh, the whole idea started with i want to make a book because there is no book about it so a website then it's just it's not the same i'm all for it I, i'm just playing devil's advocate yeah. because I've produced books of things that should not have been books. They should have been websites plenty of times. So like, I mean, it's very normal that we do it because also stupidly like in certain industries like writing, um, being published is more important than being on a website. Like it's seen with more prestige. It looks better on the CV, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, but there I want to be clear, I didn't do this for myself so that I can say, oh, I published a book. It was also that there is just so little literature out there uh, about the topic and that's something Icelanders themselves complain about or are unhappy about. And I think a book that you can put in a shop or that can be in a library, in a way, it, it, I don't know, it becomes maybe a reference on the topic more than a website would be. Because for example, now the book is in the library of the Icelandic Art Academy and future students will will be able to look things up there. So I don't know, it's still, it, it's just a different kind of object. I am not questioning you, just to be clear. You seem like you're being a little defensive all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm not questioning you. It's perfectly fine. All right. I mean, I'm 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 an artist. I'm all for the idea of monographs and and being and being part of the like the canon of art history. Like now, this book theoretically could be part of the canon of the Icelandic art history. Like it's great. It's got to be done by somebody. Yeah, well, actually, funny funny anecdote, uh, because you're saying Icelandic art history, what I wasn't aware of as well, and which is really interesting, that there hasn't been an art history book about Iceland until 2011. That's the first time an Icelandic art history was published. Sadly, that's I'm not just too surprised by that. <laughs> it's, it's a very young country, of course. So it is also it? makes sense. Yeah. In a, well, that's how the Icelanders see it themselves. Their independence has, I think, come into in the 40s only, because before they belonged to Denmark, etc. So they, they, they feel also, they have this feeling as a young country, which also influences the art scene as a whole and how they understand and see themselves. I ask about Iceland a lot because uh, part of the podcast is funded by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway. So part of my interest is actually you know, what's going on in Iceland and Scandinavia in general, but Iceland. Speaking of, okay, wait, finish finish up mm -hmm. with any other great gossip about the book publishing industry? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there were several factors that made us decide to do it on our own, which was that, yes, we didn't want to give a big sum of money to a publisher. Secondly, one contract that was offered to us also made it very clear that we were giving away all the rights to our texts and photos and that we wouldn't have been really involved in the process of making the book. The talks we had already showed that they would decide how long the texts would be, how many pictures there would be. When I asked about 
could I sit down with a graphic designer and be involved? It wasn't really <laughs> met with much enthusiasm. So basically it would have been, we produce content, we give it to the publisher and they do with it whatever they want. The advantage would have been, of course, they have a big distribution system. They have more marketing means. They probably would have also put it in shops, I don't know, in Tokyo and New York. Ah, yeah, then uh, third point, we would have gotten maybe, what was it, 5% per sale <laughs> or something like that. So in the end, you you, I don't know, you have your baby, you have your project, you work on it for a very, very long time, and then you just give it away to someone. I just wasn't, it just didn't feel right. Wait, I'm sorry, did I hear you correctly? As you, So you would do all the work, you would then give all the content over to them, and you would only get 5% of the sale price? Yeah, it's, it was some, or maybe let it be seven, but it was something very, very low. Yeah, that's insanely low. Yes. That shouldn't be, but I okay. agree. <laughs> I agree. So it is. Well, and uh, the, one of the things I always think about is like, I would love to make books. Now I've, I've made books in the past and I ran into the thing that most people don't think about, about making books, which of course is distribution. So it's all fine and good. You can make the most beautiful book in the world, but if you can't get it into a store for people to buy, it's useless. So what did you do for distribution? I mean, well, for that matter, how did you decide on where to have it printed and all that? So to be honest, it was all easier than I thought. It's very time consuming. I had to do research about printers. I, I found printers here in Belgium where I live in Germany, in the Netherlands. I asked also people in Iceland, where did you print things? I actually visited printers. I got all these proposals, how much it would cost. In the end, I got a very good tip by an Icelandic magazine, an independent magazine. And they let their magazine be printed in Lithuania at Copa, which is actually a printer that has won prizes, that even prints art books for German publishers. And they are very attentive. They even did a Skype call with me for an hour, really explaining everything, helping me with paper choices, really listening to me what I wanted to do. Super helpful. And their prices are extremely competitive. So I found something that, that was affordable with my means. It was the photographer and me sharing the costs. And it was something, of course, we had to put our own money into. But we were just so passionate about the project that we felt like it was a risk to take and the right thing to do. So then leading to the question of the distribution, has it paid off? So like, have you been able to sell and sort of recoup your money? Yes which we weren't sure about, but I had some experience with distribution for a local magazine here in Brussels. And at the time it just worked, you would, you would show the magazine in certain shops, they would like it and they would take it. And I thought, okay, I'll just, I will try to do the same with the book. I think it's a pretty object and it can, when people see it, it can convince them. So I went into shops myself and it showed the book. They liked it. They took it. And they sold it. So it was actually as easy as that. Meaning in the end, it was in shops here in Brussels, but also in Berlin. And for example, in Stuttgart, where there was an exhibition of an Icelandic artist in the local museum. They even contacted me asking if they could have the book in their shop. I have to say the best selling point in the end was in Iceland, which was unexpected for me because I thought it was more written maybe for people outside of Iceland to get to know what's happening there or people who have traveled there or want to travel there or learn about a place they don't know. But in the end, it was a lot of Icelanders themselves who wanted to have the book. I think the best sales we did in the bookshop of the Reykjavik Art Museum, because you have so many art-interested uh, locals and tourists coming through there. I, of course, for the distribution, I had to travel to Iceland <laughs> and pack all the boxes full of books in a little rental car, drive around and distribute myself, which of course is not the case when you have a publisher. It will all be done by post. Little anecdote there as well. It was too expensive to ship anything over there privately. It's just, I think one box of books would cost maybe 70 euros to ship and it's small boxes. So it would just, it's just not affordable. 
the way around it was that 150 books were directly shipped from the printer to Iceland for free, basically. And then when everything was sold out, that was actually sold out in a week, I tried to find sponsors to ship more. And after a lot of calling, writing, and so on, Iceland Air actually agreed to ship a second batch for free. So I had to drive to the Liège cargo airport here in Belgium, bring the boxes there, and they just put it on one of their planes and, yeah, <laughs> flew them over there for free. So you have to be resourceful and try to find ways to somehow get it done. Well, I mean, that's the part that a lot of people don't think about. They think about producing, they think about the graphic design, they think about the content, but they don't think about the hustle that they have to do once the product is actually produced. Yeah, it was more work than than I thought, because when it was printed and I held it in hand, I was, oh, you're so relieved and you're so happy and you think, wow, it's all done now. No, it starts again <laughs> and it's another almost full-time job. So. Yeah, and then you also you have the whole social media part, newsletters, accounting. Then we also did an online shop with a website, which actually worked great as well. We had loads of orders from the US, uh, from, from all over. Nice. Now, you live in Brussels. Were you born and raised there, or was this a, a move, a choice to live there? I was born and raised in Germany, in the countryside. I studied in Berlin, and after my studies, I went to Brussels. I'm here now for, I think, 14 years, and I just ended up here. It just happened. It was never that I thought, oh, one day I will live in Brussels, but I found a job here and more jobs, and it just, yeah. Well, the reason why I ask, and I, I apologize to Brussels for saying this in advance, but like, it's not the hub of great arts and culture necessarily. Don't get me wrong. It has lots of great arts and culture, but it's not like a hub. Like, I imagine a lot of arts and culture writers living in Paris and London and, you know, all the other great sort of hubs of arts and culture. Brussels is not really high on my list. Uh, that's really funny you say that because over the last years, it actually has been called a hub. <laughs> also, like and Maybe I'm just out of touch. I'm, I'm perfectly <laughs> acceptable with saying I'm out of touch. It's fine. It's like many other places, it's been called the New Berlin, blah, blah, blah. We've heard this so many times, which I don't agree with. <laughs> I've heard so many people smack-talking Berlin recently. It's ridiculous. Like, people keep saying, like, yeah. Berlin is done. It's over. It's passé, whatever. Like, okay, I didn't know this, but it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, here it was still used as a as a compliment for, for Brussels. But I really would say it is. It has become a hub in the last years. It's also something that I've actually written about quite a bit and that also has been written about by, by others. It has several reasons. One is that Belgium has the biggest collector base in all of Europe besides Switzerland. Yes, yeah, Switzerland's kind of obvious <laughs> for tax reasons. Belgium really has this great tradition of collectors. At the same time, it's in the middle of Europe here super easily in London, Paris, Amsterdam, Cologne. And a lot of artists have been moving here from Paris and London because the rent is more affordable. It's very close. It has a great art scene. It has everything a vibrant art scene needs. Yeah, it's just become this new gathering point for, for art world people. Okay. I apologize to, to Brussels and all of Belgium for my smack talk in the beginning. Yeah. I, I was unaware. <laughs> I I'm, I'm obviously do not have my finger on the pulse of all these kinds of things that are shifting. That's okay. It's 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 not that obvious. I know it's it's more known still for for waffles and chocolate and beer. But yeah, it's really yeah, it has waffles. been changing a lot over the ten years. Totally forgot about the waffle thing. But yes, <laughs> they are the waffles. Yeah. Now, so you're doing writing, uh, not just a, in creating a book, but you also do freelance. I guess would still be the term for it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. what kind of writer would you define yourself as critic a sort of lifestyle writer like give me sort of a elevator pitch on your style of writing i haven't studied art history which i regret <laughs> and which is why I, I read about it also a lot and might still i don't know do a course because sometimes i feel like i should have maybe a much deeper knowledge although i've already built up a lot yeah, I'm not a, no, I'm not a lifestyle. I'm not really a lifestyle writer, but 
I try to write in a way that is accessible for everyone, that people who are not well-versed in the art world will still understand everything I write. But that's also what I tried with the book and that's what I write do with every text that I write because I think it's very important to be accessible and open and not arrogant. And I hate this kind of art language that is used a lot in artist statements or, or sometimes gallery texts where it's just make yourself sound important with very fancy words. And in the end, you're just bullshitting. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of that. I have to say. <laughs> I would uh, encourage you not to go back for an art history degree then, because that's pretty much all they're going to tell you to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I really, Kind of. That, that, that's pretty much their stock and trade is just being elitist intellectualists that somehow that they're the ones that know more about everybody than this subject than everybody else. Hmm. Yeah. If you just want to be knowledgeable, do it on your own. No need for a degree. Yeah. That's, that's what I've been doing so far. And it's been working out quite well. <laughs> I always wonder because I'm not, I wasn't, I actually did do art criticism for a little while and, and I had, it was a small town thing, whatever. We're not going to talk about it, <laughs> but the, you, when you're like, cause I'm looking at the list of like different places that you've written for and the different articles that you've written on your website. And so do you propose things or are things handed to you? It's both ways. It just, it completely depends. Sometimes an editor will ask me, Hey, do you have time to write about this and that? And I will say yes. But then there are also other places where I'm more involved in the editorial team and where we actually sit together and say, okay, this issue should really deal with this topic and this topic and this topic. So it's both. How is it that you're able to cobble together a living? Because, I mean, you're a freelance writer working in a in a major metropolitan area but like is it enough like do you, what how many different jobs do you have how many different employers do you work for i have to say it's, it's pretty tough especially with the pandemic there were magazines i worked for that had to scrap entire issues because of it it actually happened twice because magazines are so connected to advertising and events for example by the way another proof for that brussels is on the art map <laughs> there's a very big art fair here for decades, Art Brussels. <laughs> art magazines here often time their launch with a fair or do some kind of collaboration. And with everything being canceled when it comes to art fairs across the last year, it also influenced magazines and then the livelihood of people like me. Fortunately, when it got really bad throughout the pandemic, the Belgian government has quite a good system where, where you do get support when you're affected. Other than that, even without the pandemic, yeah, of course, I'm I'm not rich. I probably never will be, but I do what I love and I don't live under a bridge. So for me, <laughs> that's okay. I have to say, also talking with other journalists and writers, there is a very wide feeling of feeling underappreciated because we have to be able to do a lot. We work really hard and we don't get paid much. I think if you shoot a photo, you get paid more than for an article oftentimes. As a photographer, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can understand that. When I was an intern a very long time ago, I worked at a news agency where the boss told me, become a photographer because you'll, you'll earn more money than with writing. It just changed. I don't know, the respect for the written word. I, I don't know why, but it's just not very well paid and you either have to live with that or, or do something else. A lot of journalists now also go into advertising at one point or, or copywriting because it is just, yeah, it's just the way it is. <laughs> well, I mean, it's unfortunate and, and don't get me wrong. I'm part of the thing that's probably breaking that system with running a podcast because we're offering the insight, the resources, the conversations that traditionally were in publications. Yeah, I, I'm not even sure that's that's the problem. I don't I don't think having more media or or people participating in in creating 
interesting programs uh, takes anything away from from everything else i just think there should be some kind of i don't know like a minimum pay for for certain creative works i mean i i, I think i think it's the same also in when it comes to artists there are still museums that don't pay their artists or it's it's just yeah it's it's not even it's not just writing it's it's in the whole creative industries that we fall easily into this trap of okay if you don't take this low pay someone else will or even do it for free it's just comes down to that i guess also Oh, I know. I, I did a, as I said, I used to be an art critic and I would write a weekly thing. And I mean, the amount of money they paid me even back then, and that was 12, 13 years ago, it was, uh, yeah, it was not even minimum wage by the time it was all done. But, you know, for the amount of time effort of going to an exhibition, the, you know, the travel time to the exhibition, travel time back, the travel time, travel being at the exhibition, then the amount of time to reflect on it, think about it, and then write about it. And you got paid the same as somebody who just like, you know, just made something up basically. Like it was, it was ridiculously low amount of money and it never covered the cost of doing it. And so I'm, I'm sort of wondering like, was there ever a time when writers were paid well? <laughs> I guess, I mean, it's probably still okay if you're a staff writer of the New Yorker or the New York Times. <laughs> Absolutely. Agreed. Malcolm Gladwell is doing very well. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I don't want to complain because this is also my choice. I, I knew what I was getting myself into and I'm also, I'm okay with it in the end. Otherwise I would be doing something else. And I have to say also, because you're saying how you're surviving, I've done things like, for example, before I started doing the book, where I worked as a social media manager for a huge company for 10 months. But then there I'm paid so much that I can put a lot on the side and use it for making the book or, you know. So there are times where I also do other things. As we all do. I mean, I'm not a podcaster by trade. I'm an artist and a professor by trade. I'm doing the podcast for additional knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Not money. Yeah. All right. Back to Iceland. So did you learn anything that's sort of unique about that location and those people in the time when you put, the, put together this book? Yes. What is very interesting is that although there are some very famous contemporary Icelandic artists and they are kind of on the map internationally and you see them pop up and there are things happening there when it comes to the art market, they're in a very unique position because I think now they have four commercial galleries. The first one only opened in the 90s before it just didn't exist. So they have a very different mindset when it comes to making art. For example, there was this one artist who had been living in LA for seven years, but then he moved back home because of this, he said, in the US, every artist thinks about how can I make money? How can I make money with my art? How can I pay back my student loan? And he said it was just fighting for survival all the time, having jobs, so many of them that you didn't even have time to make money anymore. Everything was about marketing it, finding a place to sell. And in Iceland, this mindset just doesn't exist because there are not that many galleries and there may be five serious collectors, if at all. So people make art for the sake of making art and they really make what they want to do without having this consumer-oriented perspective. So this is one of the main differences. Well, I noticed that because I've had some conversations with people from Iceland because of the, the grant and they they have this amazing government support for the arts. Like, holy crap, I want to be gone back and reborn somewhere in Scandinavia, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, any Finland, I don't care. Because that entire region, like they have this amazing infrastructure that supports artists so that they literally don't have to worry about selling their art because basically it's already funded. Basically the creation of the work is paid for. And so selling is kind of not important to them because they didn't lose anything because they were already supported in the beginning part, which is amazing. It, it really is. 
but it's also I mean, it's really great, but it's also not as easy as it sounds. So they have this artist salary, which you're probably referring to, but it's not like that you say, hey, I'm an artist, and then you automatically get a salary for life. That's that's not how it works. You have to apply, I think, every year or every two years, and not everybody gets it. But it's a very, very great thing to have to enable people really to make art without having to think about selling. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that nature of the the art market, like I grew up in America, so I'm all super focused on the market. Whereas now I live in Europe and I'm realizing that like Europe doesn't give a shit about the market. They, they just care about making really great works, like period. So like they're more about great ideas, great concepts, not even concerned with whether or not there are any sales. And I thoroughly admire that. And I wish I could take that on because it's, it's sort of a more pure way of looking at art. Definitely. On the other hand, you also have mega galleries in, in Europe. So yeah, I, I don't know if it's, if it's really that different in the end. Maybe the attitude is a little different, but in the end, you also have you have to survive and and make a living, you know. Yeah, but I mean, if there's so many collectors in Belgium, that sounds like a pretty good place to be living. <laughs> yes, but I, I really think being an artist or having a gallery, it's it's still it's a struggle almost almost everywhere these days. I mean, everybody's struggling. I mean, I, I've, yeah, I'm trying to think if I've even spoken to anybody that says like, no, I totally understand how everything works and, and it's working well for me. Like there's not a single person I've met that said that except maybe like a museum director. They're just like, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. But, but when it comes to like people who do like, like create creative things. So writers, musicians, visual artists, performers, they're all struggling. Like I've never met anybody that said like, you know what? I've got more than enough money. I'm fine. I don't need anything more. <laughs> yeah. Except for those who grew up with very rich parents, I guess. <laughs> Which shockingly, there are more of those than you imagine. Like, I, I mean, know. I, I went back, it was, I was trying to do this like lineage thing. I'm thinking like, why the fuck is that person famous? Like there's like there was this particular artist. I'm not going to name names. Mm -hmm. This particular artist that I'm like, their artwork is you know slightly above mediocre. Like it's not amazing, but yet they're on the you know desired by everybody. And I, I'm just like, why? And I went back, and it turns out like they were they're both their parents were famous artists. Mm -hmm. and I'm just like, hmm. mm -hmm. so that has nothing to do with them. It just has to do with their name recognition. Yeah. It's actually, it's something that, especially in the creative industries, is more prevalent than I thought, which is something I learned interviewing people also then sometimes off the record, because I was just genuinely interested in how did you make your gallery run? I mean, it's, it's impressive if you, if you mount your own gallery two, two years later, you're, you're growing bigger and bigger or, or bigger spaces, going to art fairs in the end. I don't want to take away from anybody's accomplishment, but a lot of people just have funding or family funding that other people don't have access to. And you often need a lot of money to start a project, especially with a gallery where, where people say for one or two years, you need to be able to, to make it run without making any profit. Who can actually do that? <laughs> so People with deep pockets, yes. Yeah. I know. It's. I mean, I've been parts of... Uh, you know, I've worked at very good galleries and I've also worked at galleries that have folded because they didn't sort of plan out saying like, we need to be able to have enough money in the bank to last, you know, zero sales for the next two years, potentially, mm. because that's kind of the way most galleries have to run because you just never know what's going to hit or miss at any given time. Yeah. Exactly. And and you're part of that as the person who does the writings about them because you draw the people in or not into the doors of these galleries. I don't know if I have that power. <laughs> you do. Because like if there's an article in a magazine or a newspaper, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, I should go take a look at that exhibition. But if there's not an article, I might not go and look at the exhibition. Mm. Of course, I'm also not the big art collector, so I'm not going to be keeping any <laughs> galleries doors open. So. It's fine. 
So I have shown my ignorance of all these art scenes. I know nothing about Iceland other than the people that I've spoken to. Obviously, I know nothing about Brussels because you have schooled me on that. So what's the sort of characteristics that make each of these places unique and different? Besides being outside of the art market, what's very striking about the Icelandic one is the openness of it and the sense of collaboration, community, togetherness, which also made it so easy for me to make the book. We already touched upon that there's basically no literature on the Icelandic art, so you might wonder where did I even get my information from, and it was mostly by talking to people. My research was really doing so many interviews, also interviews that are not published in the book, but really getting a sense of what are the major artists or places in, in Iceland. And then by talking to more and more people, you, you get this feeling for it. And I really think that this would not have been possible or not as easy if I would have done the same in Paris or London, where it's much more closed and elitist, I would say. I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> In Iceland, it's also, of course, also the size. It's a population of about 330,000 people. It will happen that you will sit in the pool with the president next to you. So it's really, everybody is accessible. Everybody is helpful. Everybody is just a phone call away, which has helped me tremendously. Yeah. Okay, that, that was a very random example of president by the pool. Did that happen to you? Not to me, but at the time there was a story in the Icelandic newspaper that a little boy was alone at the pool in Reykjavik and the president was there as well and he just drove him home because he had lost his parents. <laughs> so he got driven home by the president. <laughs> yeah, admittedly that is a very small... I mean, I lived in towns larger than that population of the entire country. So yeah, it's a pretty small network, but okay. But then Brussels, I mean, mm -hmm. school me on Brussels. Like, okay. I have, I've openly said that I'm an idiot about this. So please educate me a bit more on what, so like, are there lots of galleries? Is it, is it only visual arts or is it also performing arts and other things like this? Like what's the stuff that's coming together to make this like the new Berlin? I don't know if it's the new Berlin, but it's, it's really, it's a very open scene as well, just like in Iceland. Also because it is smaller than uh, Paris or London, also cheaper and they don't take themselves so seriously, which is something very Belgian also. It's really that everybody is welcome. Everybody is happy when somebody launches a project and supports it and, and adds something to the scene where in cities like London or Paris, it will more seen as, whoa, someone else, there's competition. Oh, no. So there's really the sense of, again, of community, which I really like. At the same time, while the grassroots movements here are really, really strong, also fueled by the good art schools around, there are institutions, there are many, many, many commercial galleries, a lot of I don't know, American, Brazilian, English or French galleries, they will open branches here in Brussels because of this dense collector base, also because of Art Brussels, the big art fair. When it comes to art, it's really, I would say it's really one of the places to watch out for. Well, okay, this is the second time you brought up the collector base. What's your mm -hmm. theory on why there is such a collector base there? I've asked around about this and apparently it's just... It's something that is implemented in the in the culture. It's just a thing they have been doing for a very, very long time and gets passed on within families. From what I've heard, it's always it's very educated collectors. They're not just doing it for investment or the money, but it's really people extremely passionate and knowledgeable about art. They will go to the artist studios, they will visit the galleries. They're very specific about what they buy and artists and galleries appreciate also to work with people like that who are, I don't know, not just sitting somewhere going on a website, uh, calling to buy something because they think it might gain in worth in the next years. It's interesting. Cause I mean, you bring up, like, you brought up 
Switzerland and then Belgium as two big collector bases. I mean, Switzerland to me is kind of obvious because of the taxes there or lack of taxes there. So like, is there any sort of like tax reason for Belgium? I actually don't know, but I've, I have never heard this come up. So, so I doubt it. From what I've heard, it's just really a cultural thing. And it's just a, a thing they, they like to do that has, yeah, to be honest, I don't have a better answer. <laughs> I love it. No, no, it's fine. I mean, the the fact that it's like a cultural thing is magnificent. There's that's not something to downplay. Like that should be something encouraged, as far mm. as I'm concerned. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, all for it. Could you tell me the names of three contemporary artists that you're looking at, and a little bit about why? I'm currently quite obsessed with Vivian Souter. So she had an exhibition in Gladstone Gallery here in Brussels recently. I just find it extremely fascinating because she lives basically in the rainforest in South America in a hut uh, for a long time with her mother, who now sadly died recently. And what really struck me was that she, she said that she was working against nature for many years, trying to keep her artworks from the rain, from the dogs running around, from the mudslides. And at one point, she flipped the switch and said, no, I'm, I'm stopping this. I'm going to work with it. And I will have, I don't know, the, the, the print of the dog paw on my painting. And the mud that slid down from the hill will have prints on it as well. And I, I like the artworks as well as I'm fascinated by the way she lives there. And I've been, yeah, I've been reading a lot about her lately. It's really an interesting person to get to know. I would love to interview her one day. <laughs> kind of staying on topic, I've been very interested in artists who, who work with nature in some form recently. And I interviewed one called Diana Scherer. She is a German living in the Netherlands. And she actually makes artworks that grow. So she, she has seeds or plants really under the earth. And she manipulates them in a way that, yeah, that, that make it an object or an artwork that in the end is a collaboration of her and nature, which I find super fascinating. Then a third artist that I found really interesting, who I also got to know because I interviewed him, his name is Stefan Rink. He's German as well. He also had an exhibition here in Brussels recently. And he makes stone sculptures. What I found especially interesting is how the material informs his work, the kind of research he also has done on different stones where you find them, what meanings they have, and the whole organization of it, how, how heavy such a sculpture is. How do you even get it from one place to the other? Where do you even get the material to work with? It's super interesting. And, and his art as well, which is about mythical creatures, but mixed together with pop culture. Yeah, really someone to, to check out. So you're currently a freelance writer and one of the things I always wonder about freelancers, because I asked the same kind of question of like independent curators and things like this, is like, what would be your career goal? Like, do you want to always be freelance? Like, do you really enjoy that lifestyle? Or are you hoping that it will grow into a full-time position or something or even something else? I don't have really have a clear plan. I've always kind of followed the opportunities that opened up in front of me. But I have in the past worked full time for a magazine, which I liked as well, I have to say. So I'm, I'm totally open to, to doing that again one day. But I have to say that you also get very used to the freelancer lifestyle where you can kind of work from anywhere. You can do your own times. So you don't have to be in an office at nine in the morning. You can work in your pajamas. You can write at night. It's something that suits me very well. On the other hand, it can be hard sometimes when you don't have that financial stability. So that, of course, can cause anxiety. It is also sometimes very tedious to find jobs because it's not like what I would love to do is just write and do what I love. But 
then you have to spend time on pitching on thinking who could be interested in this story who could which other publication could i contact and it's it can be very difficult and sometimes soul crushing <laughs> so it's something you have to be aware of if you become a freelancer and yeah i'm also i can't say that i will do this forever but right now uh, i'm still doing it you also have to keep involved with, or at least knowledgeable of those, the, the goings-ons of the world kind of things. Like it's, I had this conversation the other day with somebody, like we were talking about like, oh, we should be sure to like put together some podcasts for pride. And we're like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Well, uh, like pride was like three weeks ago. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> fuck, so next year I'll do that in advance to be prepared for that. So like, there are like cultural touchstones, you know, monthly or, or weekly kind of things that happen every year that people like to then see exhibitions relevant to or participate in something, you know, I mean, like in America, we have like Black History Month and like all these different kinds of things. And so you actually have to be involved in that kind of stuff in a way that like a lot of people don't have to, because like, you have to think of it months in advance in order to find a story, to then write a story, to be prepared for that thing to come out. Yes, indeed. So I have to, a lot of it is actually reading local newspapers, international ones, art related ones, just anything I can, I can get my hands on. And now that I've been working as a freelancer for, for quite a while, I also have the luck that I get, well, I don't know if it's luck, it can also be a burden, but I get many, many, many emails every day, press emails about that also look far into the future sometimes. So you will, you will get an email which gives you the whole program of a museum for an entire year, which you will not find on the website maybe. Or yeah, but I have to, I have to gather a lot of information all the time to see what's going on and, and what will happen in the future. And yeah, definitely. All right. And I'd like to wrap up with offering you the opportunity to give some advice to the next generation from your experiences, pros or cons. A lot of people try and do be like cheery and positive, but also some potentially something of like, okay, I did this thing and it did not work at all. So don't do this is <laughs> perfectly legitimate. Yeah. Maybe first the advice about self-publishing a book. I only did it once. I'm very happy I did it, and I don't think I will do it again, to be honest. It was really a passion project. I don't regret anything, but I know now that in the future, if I do a next book, I will only do it if it gets funded. It it really takes a lot out of you financially, time-wise, emotionally, and it was seriously a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I'm very happy about it, and we even we sold almost every single book, but still, it's you're not going to get rich making it. So yeah, just really think think about it and if if yeah if this is worth it to you when it comes to freelance writing you also have to be aware you're not going to become rich you, you'll you'll survive but you know it's not you're not going to have a a crazy lifestyle i don't know <laughs> so it's it's just things you you have to you have you have to need a you need a passion to work in the field and you really have to love what you're doing at the same time, also think of your rights and, and put your foot down. Don't just say yes to anything. Because in the beginning, of course, to build your portfolio, I've also worked for free because if you don't have anything published, no one will hire you. That's clear. So when you're young, it's normal to do, to do some things for free. But at one point, you need to stop. You also have to put a price on your time. It also helps to talk to other freelancers. No one really likes to talk about money. I love to talk <laughs> about money. Feel free. Go ahead. Tell me all about it. How much do you earn? <laughs> That's not what I meant. But for example, when you need to set your rates, you don't even know uh, where do you start? Where do you add? Uh, how, do you, how do you choose this? So you basically have to, to talk to colleagues or even people you hardly know and say, hey, can I, can I ask you some questions? Wait, so there's not like some standard thing that's like, the industry standard that says, you know, rates for freelance articles is X for this amount of words or this topic or anything like that. There's nothing standardized like that. No, because every publication, every publication does it in a different way. One will pay you by the article, one will pay you by word, one will pay you just by a sign. So you never know what you're in for. Which do you prefer as a writer? By the article, by the word? Because I mean, I can be very verbose. So by the word could be very lucrative. 
not really, because they will tell you how many words the article has beforehand, <laughs> and you can't write more. For me, it doesn't matter how it's calculated, as long as the end price is correct for me, you know? I do. I don't mind which method they use. Okay. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for interviewing me, and I'm really sorry that you have to edit so much. Don't stress over it. It's my job. All right. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I enjoy asking stupid questions to smart people, and I've learned so many different things about what I've done wrong and what I can do better in my career. And I hope that this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and maybe a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank Todd FF for writing a review and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you, Todd FF. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find more information about the podcast on Instagram at the wise fool pod or our website wisefoolpod.com